Hello, everyone. Welcome to Every Kind of Mind, a podcast all about exploring different types of minds and celebrating neurodiversity. Every Kind of Mind is a podcast series under Simply Neuroscience's The Synapse Podcast. Today, we'll be covering autism. We'll go on this journey with me, just me, Jenna Spuskevich, today. Our guest today is Danielle Sullivan, the founder of Neurodivergent Coaching, which works to give resources to neurodivergent folks and do social justice work and disability awareness. They also host the Neurodivergent Podcast, which talks about issues pertinent to ADHD and autistic folks. future editing Jenna here. I just wanted to hop in real quick and say that the reason I just said just me in the intro is because on the day of this recording, Jenna's ended up falling ill. So it's just me and Danielle talking today, but the next episode should be back to normal. So now back to your regularly scheduled program. Okay, so can you just please start off with saying your name and pronouns? Sure, my name's Danielle Sullivan. You can use she, hers, or they, them for me, please. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, so can you tell me a little bit more about like what you do? Sure. I am the head coach and the owner of Neurodiverging Coaching, and I also run the Neurodiverging Podcast. I'm a late identified autistic adult and probably ADHD as well. I was identified in my early 30s after my youngest child was identified as autistic, and there were like no resources for autistic adults who are parents. And so I started the podcast to try to create resources for folks like me who are late identified autistics and are parenting neurodivergent kids. And so now the podcast and the coaching practice serves folks all over the world who are mostly autistic and or ADHD adults. We also serve other types of neurodiverse people. There's a large gamut of of folks that we support with building executive function skills, life skills, you know, making communication between autistic brains and non-autistic brains easier on both sides, relational skills, um, what else? Lots of things. <laughs> Basically, if it's a life skill that, you know, goes along with with helping people have a better life and be able to engage in community and the world more, that's what we support. Yep. And so I'm really happy to be here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I'm just curious, like, what do like those resources look like specifically? Is it just like articles for people to read, like webinars, kind of like community forums or something? Sure. We basically do as much as I have time to do. And I'm hoping that soon there will be more people to help me do more things. Right now, I offer one-on-one coaching and group coaching. I offer free articles that are evidence-based on the blog, as well as the podcast, which interviews a lot of neurodivergent kind of thinkers and creatives. And those transcripts are also up on neurodiverging.com. I also host monthly free and low-cost webinars on topics related to neurodiversity. We've done a huge range of those, ranging from like how to handle alexithymia in uh, romantic relationships, all the way to how to use picture cards, visual supports as adults. So there's some very practical and some more theoretical stuff in there. And then what else do I do? I have an autistic parents peer support group that runs monthly. That's a free resource for autistic parents who are struggling in parenting. We also run a weekly uh, Get Things Done group, which is kind of an accountability activity buddy group where folks can log on online in a Zoom chat and I'm there and I'll help coach you through any stuck points you're having and you could sit with us and do your bills or do your laundry or write up your article or whatever work that you need help not procrastinating on. We will sit and do it with you. And that's been really fun and 
people have gotten a lot done. So, yeah. Oh, that sounds really cool. So is it like just you that's like running all of this or do you have other people you're working with? Right now, it's just me as we're recording this. I have occasionally hired neurodivergent content writer people, like we want to do this article. And so I've hired those out. I also have a transcriptionist who works with me for the podcast transcriptions because I cannot do transcriptions. And her name is Justice. She's wonderful. I'm so lucky to have her. And then we are in the process of hiring more coaches so that we can diversify some of our coaching opportunities so that we have more one-on-one availability, but also more group coaching opportunity, because we would love to have more peer support groups and like group coaching classes and things for folks. Right now, right when we're recording, it's just me. Wow. So I get why you started it, because you self-diagnosed autistic later in life. How did you start neurodivergent coaching? Right before the pandemic, actually. If I'd known there was going to be a pandemic, maybe I wouldn't have done this, but I'm grateful I didn't know, I guess. I think it was in February or January of that year, I sort of just got, I don't even know how to explain it. Who understands the brain? I got really annoyed, frankly, about how hard it was to find stuff to help me. My kiddos are wonderful, but when they were younger, we had significant challenges related to our different communication styles. The things I'd been taught to expect as a parent, like to make my kids expect and the parenting styles I'd been taught were not working for my family at all. First, I felt like a failure. And then after a while, I was like, no, gosh darn it, I am doing my best. I am reading all these books. I am taking in all this information. It's still not working. This is not a me problem. This is like a something else problem. I'm, I'm, there's a gap, right, in, in the resources I'm able to access. And from that kind of place of total annoyance and frustration, I started, I just recorded some podcasts. I just, I wrote up some scripts and I, I, I recorded them like on my phone. It was real low tech. I had no idea what I was doing. And I, I put them on the internet <laughs> and then I was like, oh gosh, what have I done? But they got, you know, it's not like they blew up or anything, but people listened to them. And I was like, how did they even find these? Like, I, I think I initially recorded like five-ish or so and I put them up and then I kind of went away for a week and came back and it was like, wow, someone from Australia listened to this. And I was like, I think this means that people need this community, even if they aren't following me for sort of educational reasons or because they want the resources the way that I needed the resources. I think there's a piece of being autistic, especially as an adult, that it's just hard to find other people like you. Neurotypical people don't really get it. So you can talk to your friends, your neurotypical friends about it, but there's this sense of solidarity and community that comes with talking to other autistic adults about autistic adult issues. And so once I realized that it was reaching people, I sort of threw up the website, like I bought a domain and I figured out WordPress and I transcribed the original episodes myself. And then Justice, thank goodness, went back and retranscribed them so they're actually legible now. And so if you go on the website, I promise you can read them. It's okay. They were really bad though when I did it. And I, I just did it. It was just out of this sense of frustration and this sense it should be better for us. We deserve resources that are just for us. And I didn't think I was like the best person to make them, but it was like no one else was doing it. Originally, it was just me kind of talking about the stuff that I cared about, which as, as an autistic is wide ranging and sometimes uh, nonsensical. But after a while, I started reaching out to other neurodivergent people or people who were sort of neurodivergent allies and just saying, do you want to come talk about this thing? Then after a while, I got people reaching out to me and saying, hey, I want to come on the podcast. After I'd been doing that for a while, I started getting emails from listeners who were saying, I really want support with this specific thing. And I, do you know any coaches who understand neurodiversity? And I really didn't. And even finding a therapist who understands neurodiversity is hard. 
And finding a neurodivergent therapist or coach is like a next level tier of difficulty for a lot of folks. And so I decided to go get trained as a coach so that I can offer support to these folks. And I went and did that. And I started the coaching branch. And just to be totally blatant, the other thing is that it's a volunteer effort. There's no income in podcasting. And, and originally when I started, that was fine. But once you're spending significant amounts of hours interviewing people or researching potential interviewees, actually interviewing them, doing all the editing work, actually putting it up on the website, once I had a little bit of income, I immediately went to justice to transcribe stuff. So it's really volunteer work. And I wanted to have some kind of source of income that could fund the podcast because it is the free resource that everyone can access. And I think it's really important that people be able to access stuff regardless of their income or their ability to pay for things. But also I needed to fund my ability to work on the thing. And so the coaching really helped give me a skill set and a sort of niche that I could kind of use to funnel that income into the podcast. So I hope that helped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. With all that you're doing, what does just like a typical day look like for you? Oh, it varies widely because I am an autistic person. I do like my structures and my routines, but I also have the same kind of executive dysfunction issues as many of us have, where I don't like being told what to do, even by myself. And I don't like feeling like I must do the thing just because it's on my calendar or whatever. Well, I can give you today. Today I got up and I fussed around with my kids for a while. And then I answered email. I'm in the process of going back and forth with a couple of future guests for the podcast on figuring out interview questions and scheduling and that kind of thing. So that kind of admin I did first. I answered comments on the Neurodiverging blog and did some like backend update stuff. I checked in with a couple of friends about their various stuff going on. I emailed some coaching clients. Uh, I did various other admin things. I took a break and I went and hung out with my kids and I had lunch and we, we unschool. So I'm also teaching my, my kiddos and being a good parent, right? I then came back and I had an initial client intake. And then I met with a potential podcast guest to talk about their product and whether it was something I was interested in showcasing on the podcast. Then I met with you to do this interview. And then I'll take a break and go have dinner, hang out with the kids, do stuff there. And then I have another uh, client this evening. uh, That's just a regular existing client. Other things I can do on given days would be like sending emails back and forth to justice about transcriptions, writing articles for the blog. I do a lot of like curriculum development. If I'm setting up a group coaching program, we, I do a monthly educational webinar. So I will, you know, make the slides for those, write up the scripts for those, practice them to make sure they make sense, that kind of stuff. What else? I send out reminder emails to various people about various things. Like if they're going to come to one of the accountability buddy sessions, Sometimes clients ask me to text them to remind them to do the thing. So I'll do that. Yeah, it's very full. And I think one of the reasons I really like it is there's a lot of small things. And so I'm busy, but I'm not too busy. And if I can't sit down and write the article today, well, I could work on one of these other things instead, right? I have a week where I don't really do much, except I just edit podcasts all week. And maybe I'll fall behind on something else, but then I can have a week where I just work on articles and that's fine too. And so it really allows my sort of neurodivergent brain to focus on the thing I feel like focusing on instead of feeling like I'm beholden to some external schedule. Yeah. I also love when you like small things you can like tick off your list and you're just like, yeah. they're small, but they're done. So many small things in this kind of job. And uh, it would sometimes be nice to be able to dig into bigger things a little more, but I mean, the small things make it run. And a lot of that is just communication with people. And the reason I got into this is to support people 
it's okay if I spend all day on emails. Like I got to talk to people at least. So <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure how much you would know about this, but with all your research between like neurodivergent people comparing to like neurotypical people, how does your work style differ from a neurotypical person? Despite being late diagnosed, I've never been a neurotypical person. And so I don't have that lived experience. I can say that from the neurotypical perspective, I failed at a lot of traditional things. Like I couldn't work kind of conventional jobs because of sensory issues, because of sort of ableist expectations around how we socialize or how we communicate. Even in higher educational settings where I did really well in terms of like the actual coursework and the education piece, the social pieces always got me. And I socialize fine with other neurodivergent people. It really is a mismatch between the communication styles of, of neurotypical and neurodivergent people. For me, it really comes down to having a lot of control over my environment and how I do the thing I want to do. So I work really well as a contractor, right? If I get to decide what the end product should look like and how I'm going to get there, I'm fine. If I'm trying to work to match what somebody else wants, especially if it's a neurotypical person, I have to ask a lot of questions and make sure I'm really clear on what they want. Because in the past, the way that communication happens, that I would think that I understood what was wanted. And then I would produce that result. And then it would end up being like totally opposite from what I thought they asked me to do. And so I think neurotypicals work better with neurotypicals. It's probably what it is. I had a lot of ableism and lack of understanding push against me when I tried to work in a neurotypical style. I will also say that I work much better letting my brain do what it wants to do. So I definitely fall into that autistic inertia space of it's hard to get started, but once I get started, I'm just off and I'll go and go and go and go. And so it really works for me sometimes to like, you know, hang out and do nothing until two in the afternoon and then just work hard for six hours and get a ton done. I don't think that neurotypicals think that is healthy, quote unquote, but it works really well for a lot of autistic and ADHD and other neurodiverse people. So the kind of letting your brain focus when it wants to and not focus when it wants to and just letting go of the expectation there has been really helpful. What else? Neurotypicals tend to break a lot for social time, which always bugged me. Because again, once I'm rolling, I just want to do the thing. Don't talk to me. Just let me do the thing. I'm just trying to point out different styles. There's no judgment in like one style is better than the other, right? If I'm working, I really don't want you to talk to me. I don't want any additional sensory input. I just want to be left to work. And that, from what I understand, very different from neurotypical work styles, where that social piece of engagement as they're performing the work is a really high priority, I think, for them in a way that is not for me. And I like to be able to stim and move my body and get up and walk around. When I tried to work in an office, I was constantly getting up to get tea. Retrospect, it was like, I just needed to move. I was getting fidgety, sitting there doing audits all day. But a lot of times I would get reprimanded for standing up and walking around. And it was like walking around was making me more effective and efficient at my job. But it's not what is expected when you're in an office setting. So being able to move, being able to not constantly watch what my face is doing, and that kind of masking piece, am I making the right eye contact? Am I smiling at the right places? All those things. So I think there's a lot of things that neurotypical people sort of don't have to do. They're neurotypical. So it's like already the standard, right? Mm -hmm. But being autistic in a neurotypical world means I'm not the standard. And so I have to work harder to either mimic the standard, or I can sit by myself in my home office with my kids, with my cats, with my, you know, stimming equipment and my fidgets and my heavy blanket and just make it a nice space for myself. And it just works a lot better. I relate to a lot of that. I also listened to your episode about work styles where you're pretty much talking about oh, yeah. all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know like one other thing you mentioned that I was like, oh, I did that too. 
you're talking about how you worked in like small restaurant or bakery mm-hmm. or I forgot what it was it was like really small and you were talking about how you kept like annoying your boss because oh, yeah. you just wanted to be given like new tasks to do please give me something to do yeah absolutely and that's not a neurotypical thing right neurotypical people are fine just hanging out without there being work to do and mm-hmm. that they're also fine socializing when there's not work when it's mixed neurotypes like there's all different kinds of people if I might have to talk to you I would rather be working I like to socialize and I like other people but I need a structure around that right I need to like go to the book group and we're going to talk about this book or I need to you know go to the grocery store and we're going to talk about the eggs right it's just we're just standing there and you could talk to me about anything that is really anxiety provoking for me and so I did I constantly asked my boss like surely there must be more work to do right and and she was great about it she was lovely but it was in retrospect it's really funny because it's such an autistic thing to be doing and I just had no idea at the time mm-hmm. I went to like this very like small grocery store basically mm-hmm. like three stores like in my area so it's like nowhere else it was a very small store and I worked as like a cashier there for like four years every time it was like slightly slow I would be really, like go up to like the front office and be like give me something to do I'm bored and they had all these like tags pretty much mm-hmm. where it's like oh like put like the new tag on the item like reprice it I did that all the time but I like loved facing too because I was like oh I can make it look pretty <laughs> <laughs> and so I just did it all the time I just became like no for me like Jenna will ask me stuff to do or Jenna will always be like gone from the fresh stuff they'll like call me back up yeah I'm still like that if I'm I don't like being bored I can take downtime but I need to be in the right mind space. I'm good at it when I'm in the right mind space, but I don't really like being bored. I get agitated and I really do better. Even if it's busy work, I'll do busy work. I don't care. Like, give me your busy work. I need to keep moving. If I'm already moving, I need to keep moving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I know you said you were diagnosed later in life. So what was kind of like that process like for you? Sure. So I have a son who is nine now. And when he was about two, we started noticing some of the like conventional signs of autism, um, which was like, you know, delayed motor development, started walking before he crawled. He did this really adorable, but weird backwards scoot thing instead of crawling, like a little inchworm. And his speech was quite delayed. And so we did a bunch of other stuff. And then eventually it was like, I'm pretty sure he's autistic. I don't know that you necessarily need an official diagnosis for autism, and there's good reasons to get one and good reasons to not get one. We decided to get him diagnosed because we needed speech therapy support, and the only way to get it through our insurance was to have an autism diagnosis or for him to have a stroke. And it was like, there are other reasons that people have speech delays insurance, but insurance didn't care. And so we, he was autistic anyway, so we just brought him in and you know got the diagnosis. And when I was doing all the research when he was little on kind of what was going on and what we could do to support him and these kinds of things, you know, you read all the traditional medical textbook stuff. I started reading people's blogs of adult autistics and things. And then I stumbled into the whole, like, what autism looks like in people socialized as women thing. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, that's me. And I hear this from other late identified people too. So I don't think I'm alone in this, that I'd always struggled a lot to fit in. And I always struggled a lot with sort of daily routines and tasks, like keeping things clean, remembering to eat, like basic stuff. But I'm also able to do a lot of things. Like I got through grad school, I had kids, like, you know, I've kept several cats alive for 15 plus years. Like I, you know, I'm capable in lots of ways. And so it was always like, oh, if I can't do these basic things, like feed myself, I must be just broken in some way. I must be failing in some way. It must be something about me. And when I, through researching for my kiddo, bumped into all this, like, 
here's other people who have felt the same way. And it turned out that they were autistic. I was like, oh, that would make a lot of sense. And would also sort of explain why my kid is autistic because there's some genetic predisposition, right? Even, even if it's not fully that. And also I started thinking about my own family, like my relatives and going like, oh, 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 at, at several people in the family. I did a lot of research for several years. And then I went and got a formal diagnosis in part just to verify because personally there are some other medical things in my family and I didn't want to think it was autism and it turned out to be something else, right? That was kind of the process. And then just throughout that, I've just kept trying to learn from other people's experiences because the medical system really doesn't know what to do with autistics like me who are have this very spiky skills sort of profile where we're really strong at certain things and really weak at other things. They don't know what to do with us and they don't know how to support us. And often they won't even catch us. I was 32 and I had to push to be diagnosed. Felt very, very secure in the fact that I was when I did all the research. But even to get a doctor and often mostly male doctors to take me seriously as potentially autistic was really difficult. And then finding a therapist who knew anything about autistic adults was extra difficult. I really had to push. And a lot of people don't know that they're supposed to be pushing. So we just don't get caught. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. As you were talking to doctors, other like friends and family or people on the internet, how do you describe your neurodiversity to people that don't understand it? Oh, there are so many ways that my brain works differently than other people's. Depending on the kind of relationship I'm going to have with the person, I might point out different things first. So for example, when I'm dating, a lot of times I will point out that just because I'm not making eye contact doesn't mean I'm not listening to you. If I make too much eye contact, I get overwhelmed and I can't think about what you're saying. If I want to really pay attention to you, I'll be looking over here. So take that as a positive sign, right? So sometimes it's just explaining behaviors that might not be interpreted correctly if the person is not familiar with how autistic people work. Some ways that my brain works differently. Well, I'm mostly face blind. I'm not severely face blind, but I'm in the moderate range. So if I see someone that I know outside of the usual context that I see them in, I don't recognize them. I am good at voices. So if you talk to me, I'll be able to place you. But if it's just a face, I have no chance. And so that means a lot of times people think I don't recognize them when actually I do know who you are. It's just you are usually in the neighborhood and today you're at the library and my brain just doesn't translate those things well. I just like, <laughs> I memorize people based on what they wear. And so I do okay with people who are decorated in some way, I guess is what I'm trying to say. If you have earrings or interesting shoes, uh, glasses of some kind, if your hair is a certain way, that I can memorize and that you're usually in, then I can memorize. I can memorize specific aspects of your body or face, but I don't put those things together well. And so if you change your glasses or your hair or your shoes, I might just suddenly not recognize you, even if I've known you for years and years, which is awesome. I'm being sarcastic podcast listeners. Many autistics have auditory processing disorder or other kinds of sensory processing disorders, which just means that my brain doesn't process information coming in through my eyes, ears, nose, mouth, skin, and also hunger and thirst cues, hot and cold cues, having to go to the bathroom cues, any kind of that interoceptive stuff, the same as neurotypical people do. And so I have to do a lot more work to process all that information and organize it and prioritize it and respond to it. Um, and that means I get overwhelmed faster and I might need to like leave busy situations or loud situations so that I don't have a meltdown. That's something that, in my experience, neurotypical people have no way to understand because their brain just does this stuff automatically. And it's really hard to explain. The best way I can think of is if you could imagine having to think about your heart beating every single time it beats, it would be a lot of extra work for you, right? And so that's kind of what it is vaguely for some of those sensory processing challenges. 
is I, I have to think about every single little bit. Other ways I'm different, my working memory is really different. I don't hold on to information visually at all, really, for more than a couple seconds. And even auditory information that's giving to me, it doesn't stick in my head. And so I have to use a lot of different kinds of supports to hold on to information for long enough to like go from one room to the next room or to pass a message from one person to another person. Neurotypical people tend to have stronger working memory than I do. So those executive function skills are really different. Thank you so much for sharing that. Then getting back to parenting and all that, because mm-hmm. I know you were like reading all these like how to parent books. Was your parenting different just because like you yourself are like neurodiverse or did you change your parenting as you found out like your kids are neurodiverse? So basically, how has your parenting style like developed? I come from a family that uses sort of the traditional authoritative methods, which means not assuming that the kid is going to follow the parent's word as law. But a family that did set boundaries and enact consequences for violating those boundaries, occasionally punishments were used, though mostly pretty, you know, light ones in the realm of punishments. But it was an authoritative setup. It was a, it was a hierarchical setup where the parents are not only like more knowledgeable and more experienced than the kids, but have more power than the kids. When I started parenting, I definitely leaned that way. I think a lot of parents are like that. We parent the way we were parented, even if we don't mean to. And that actually worked kind of okay for my first kiddo, my autistic kiddo, who is honestly very genial and very easygoing and is happy to collaborate with you and just doesn't put up much of a fight about anything. Or if he does, we'll talk about it. It's like not a thing. My second child is an ADHDer and she has a pretty significant sense of wanting to do things her way. That parenting style that I started out with totally did not work at all for her. I don't know that my parenting style evolved so much because I was autistic or parenting an autistic child, at least not my specific autistic child. But when I had my ADHD or like we were really struggling, she would have these extended long tantrums that I didn't know what to do with. I was getting constantly overwhelmed and having meltdowns and shutdowns and just overwhelmed symptoms, burnout symptoms as an autistic person. At this time, I was like barely identified too. So like I had been self-identified, but I was still in the process of trying to get formal kind of identification. So I didn't have a lot of support and I didn't really understand enough about how my brain worked to offer myself accommodations. (laughs) And so I'm one of those people who just likes to collect information and keep it in my brain for when maybe it'll be useful in 20 years. And so I've always been somebody who read a lot of kind of self-helpy books, like psychology. I like sort of executive coaching type of stuff. And I liked parenting books for showing me how different people approach it. And with my daughter, I found Ross Green, who's known for his collaborative and proactive solutions, which is a method of parenting that focuses on a collaborative relationship between the the parent and child, which is what I teach now when I work with parents on neurodivergent coaching. And also Howard Glass. And he talks a lot about how children with high anxiety how a lot of their reactions are these sort of outbursts kind of things that were happening with my youngest kiddo. With those two books in combination, I completely, completely revamped my parenting style. I dropped a ton of demands. I stopped asking kids to do things that were hard for them. I stopped assuming that when my kiddo said no, that it was because she didn't want to do the thing and started assuming that she would do it if she could. And so the no meant that she couldn't. I dropped a lot of assumptions about kind of how kids work. That in retrospect, it's like, where did those assumptions come from? They were all ridiculous. Like they made no sense, but they were just how I had been taught. Dropping some of those assumptions and assuming that my kiddo was doing the best she could and that we needed to provide her skills building and, you know, sometimes reframing how she was thinking about her life and what her abilities within that. 
And also just reducing her anxiety and giving her more authority over herself has totally flipped our whole family dynamic. And I feel like we're one of the strongest families I know. I don't mean that with hubris, but just to say that I think that really treating your kids as people first and really trying to break down that automatic authority that parents have and power differential. Like we are more experienced. We know more about the world. We have more information to draw on, but we're not like better at anything just because we're parents compared to our kids. Like we just have different skill sets. And so really acknowledging that and bringing yourself down a peg and really just talking to your kids like they're capable and figuring out together how to solve problems totally changed my parenting style. And has really affected me as a coach too. People are capable. It's not like you're coming to coaching because you're not capable. You're coming to coaching because you're stuck. And I just need to help you talk through what's going on, but you can solve it. You're absolutely able to just need some support along the way. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I think my parents also very much follow that like authoritative sort mm-hmm. of thing. Very young, we got like light punishment type mm-hmm. things. I got like, grounded once because I went to a friend's house and they'll tell mm-hmm. them where I went. So they answered, I was like, God. Yeah. Yeah, just like stuff like that. There's definitely very much like a power differential because mm-hmm. like there, I have like two other siblings. So like there's three of us and like two of them. So it's like technically we outnumber them, but they have more power. They'll so. just outvote you. Yeah, right. Exactly. And it- I'm sure your parents were doing the best they could with that punishment, but also wouldn't it have been helpful if maybe they just checked in with you about, could we change the rules so that you have to call us before you go somewhere and taught you that skill? And then you would have had the skill and it would have solved the whole thing. Yeah. So I just, that's just my personal opinion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember like from that grounding, I wasn't allowed to like play the computer and there was like this video game on like the computer. Yeah. So this Mm -hmm. was like early 2000s. We all, like, all loved it, but we had one computer, so, like, mm-hmm. each one of us had to sit down, and, like, usually the other two were just, like, watching the person play. So I was stuck for two weeks watching them, but not able to play the game. I was so frustrated. Yeah, and did that teach you not to, I mean, maybe it did, but not in a useful way from my yeah, perspective. It's, yeah, it was memorable. I went there, and that was the punishment, and, like, it was just down the street, so it's mm-hmm. not like I was going far. Yeah. My neighborhood's very safe. I don't know what I was thinking. But also, I don't know how grounding helped. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of those things that come up with parents and kids or teens or young adults, even, they're really about mismatched communication or mismatched expectations. Wouldn't you rather teach a kid how you resolve those and then send them out into the world as young adults who have to like work and navigate that thing rather than, okay, now you are punished. And also, we're not going to teach you the skill to fix it next time. And so then you're out in the world being like, oh, I did something wrong. I better punish myself instead of like learning the skill. So yeah, I'm about learning skills personally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, 100%. So then with your work in like neurodivergent coaching and social justice work and like disability awareness, obviously, this podcast is very much for future neuroscientists. So speaking to people that are already involved or are going to be involved in neuroscientists, what do you think that like, they should kind of know as they get involved in this field. Yeah, I know that neuroscience is a really broad field. I think that's one of the awesome things about it. What I would tend to lean to is that the people you're working for are are people. Those of us who are neurodivergent or autistic or ADHD or OCD or schizophrenic or whatever it is, that we're still very valuable as people. Most of the work that needs to be done needs to assume that we're capable. I would really encourage, especially if you're neurotypical, I always really encourage any professional that's going to work with our group of neurodivergent people to listen to us when we tell you what our problems are. Because in my experience, especially coaching neurodivergent people, a lot of times I'll get 
you know, emails or whatever from neurotypical parents or grandparents or siblings who are like, my autistic kid has this problem and I'm really worried about it. And then you talk to the autistic kid and they're like, no, that is not a problem. I don't care about that. I care about this thing, right? You know, obviously there's a difference between a kid who's six and a kid who's 16 or 26 even, right? But usually the person themselves has a better idea of what kinds of supports or accommodations or help they need than the neurotypical people around them, even if the neurotypicals mean well and love that person. And so I just really encourage neuroscientists, regardless of which branch you end up in, to seek out neurodivergent voices in the area you're working on, whatever that ends up being, and to make sure that work you're doing includes our thoughts and our ideas in that. Because we are able, we're capable people. There are, you know, neurodivergent neuroscientists existing. And if you're listening to this, hi, I'm glad you're here. We need more of you. It's our right to have control over how we're being studied, what the information that is coming out of those studies, how it's used, right? And what kind of developments come from that. And so I just hope you keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I mean, I guess maybe you kind of answered this a little bit already, but what do you wish people understood about your neurodiversity? What do you want them to know? I think the first thing I would say is just assume we're doing our best. <laughs> um, also, please try to assume that if something's not working, that it is a two-way street, right? And so if you're having communication issues or you're worried about someone's behavior or whatever, we are doing just as much work to understand you as you're doing to understand us. And I just wish more people acknowledge that. And I would also just say, try to be curious about difference instead of judgmental about difference. If you're walking down the street and you see someone moving differently or speaking differently or anything, anything differently, it's more helpful to be curious about why that's happening than to be judgmental about it. Ableism and other sorts of discrimination are such a big plague on our society. And a lot of us internalize a lot of that without really meaning to. And so if you want to be an ally to neurodivergent people, part of that is being an ally to people with other kinds of disabilities too. And just recognizing that if something looks quote unquote weird, that that might be a judgment on your part. And that's not like wrong of you, like it's in all of us, but that you can question that and be like, maybe I can be curious about this and understand it better, right? Rather than assuming that somebody is like, I don't know, going to hurt you or going to make a bad decision or, you know, something like that. Be curious. Thank you so much. What more work do you think needs to be done in just like accessibility and really just advocating like for and like with neurodiverse people? Oh my gosh, there's so much work that needs to be done. I was talking with, there's an autistic advocate named Christine M. Kondo, and she is working on the idea that we have an ADA, right? We have the Americans with Disabilities Act that lays out very specifically what kind of accommodations should be available to anyone with a physical disability. And these are regulations that can be used by workplaces to sort of standardize across the country what kind of accommodations you're allowed to ask for. There's nothing that exists like that for neurodivergent people. And so, and this is Christine's work, I just want to be clear. Um, and so she's working on how can we sort of collect language so that we could develop a system where we could codify accommodations for neurodivergent people. But as we are right now, from school to school to school, from workplace to workplace, the accommodations you can ask for and request and actually get are widely variable. <laughs> like even in places that are actually pretty good with accommodations, like some of the big, like Google and Microsoft tend to be really good about accommodating neurodivergent needs, but not universally. And I think part of that problem is that we don't have a blueprint for that. 
uh, as it is, where this, where we are kind of evidence-wise, the kinds of accommodations that autistic people need are hugely varied because we're such a diverse population. And the same for any other, you know, insert your neurodivergence here. And that makes it really hard for the world to take our needs seriously to some degree, because we're really never lying about what we need to do well. Please try to believe us when we tell you we need a thing, even if it makes no sense to you. But because there's no sort of formal thing someone can look up and read about, it's really hard to get neurotypical people to give us those accommodations. So I think there's so much work that needs to be done. Part of the reason I do this work is the education piece is just that a lot of these different types of thinking are just really not well understood, even among people who are very open-minded and otherwise tolerant. And that it never hurts to read a little bit more, to listen to more podcasts, to to educate yourselves on things you don't know about, just so that you can support this work in your everyday life, right? Support your coworkers who need accommodations and you know, ask questions when you don't understand why someone's asking for something that doesn't make sense for you. And again, that be curious piece, like what can you do in your daily life to make it easier for the rest of us? We would appreciate it. But a lot of it is, like I was saying, there's no legal precedent right now, at least in the United States, for a lot of this work. And that means it's harder for individual groups to have the reach that we need to really make sustainable changes. Yeah, it would definitely be amazing if we had something like codified like that. People want to put things in boxes, so they mm-hmm. also want to put like autistic people in boxes. It's like, oh, if you're autistic, like you've got to have these things. But like yeah. you said, it's like a very diverse population. So mm-hmm. it'd be more just like, here's the combinations they could have. And then people can be like, I want this one, this one, this one, this one. If you could give us a checklist, right? And we could just be like, give me these four things. I don't care about the rest of this. I think that would be fantastic, right? But we need mm-hmm. to develop like a comprehensive checklist first. And I think that's still ongoing, yeah. you know? Yeah, because even the ADA we have now isn't even that enforced well, like, at all. Oh, there's tons of problems with it. I didn't mean to imply otherwise. It's, but it yeah. is a starting point, right? And yeah. neurodiversity doesn't even have that starting point, so. Exactly. Yeah, because I know, like, I was failed by, like, my university with, like, ADA. I have, like, celiac, and they were not doing stuff with, like, food at all. They weren't even forced to anyway, because it was like, oh, it's like a religious institution, so they're, like, mm. a loophole. Where yeah. the ADA is like, ah, oh, if it's a religious institution, they don't have to follow this. I'm still disabled, please. I still deserve <laughs> my accommodations, regardless of where I'm standing at the moment. Yeah. There are certainly lots of problems. I think you're completely right. It, it's not reasonable to not acknowledge those. I also think we can argue that more disabled people are served by that existing than we were mm-hmm. before it existed. It's like, I'm glad you're here. I just wish you could be better. Better. <laughs> better that you are here than not being here. Mm-hmm. But we're still not great. <laughs> Completely agree. Yeah. It's just, I hope it's the first step on the never ending stairwell of increasing accommodations for folks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sort of like the end of the episode now, what is kind of like, we talked about like so many things, but what do you think is kind of like the main takeaway? It's like, what kind of like piece of information do you want to pop in their heads? Or what's like the one thought you want people to kind of leave this episode with? Sure. I think that the main thing that I would like people to think about is that human diversity is the reason we've been so successful as a species. And part of human diversity means that we are all valuable, but in different ways. And that means that just because I have, again, that spiky skills profile that a lot of neurodivergent people have, just because I have some weaknesses if my working memory or my sensory processing works differently. I'm also really good at things that you're probably not good at. And we need these, wherever one of us has gaps, somebody else has the, the patch to fill it in, right? 
we need lots of different kinds of people. And this approach is, is similar for physically disabled as well as people who are neurodivergent or have other mental disabilities. And so really digging into the idea in, in your own mind about what that diversity means and what that means about how you judge people who are different than you and why you do that is something I really encourage folks to sit with and think about. And not because you are a bad person or you've done something wrong, but because this stuff is in all of us. It's part of the ocean we're swimming in, right? We absorb it. But we can also develop tactics against it. And that's step one to making the world a better place for everybody and really leaning into that social justice piece. So, Yeah, thank you so much again for taking the time to be on this episode and chat with me. Um, so I guess kind of the last question, and I'll definitely like have all these in the show notes, of course, but can you just tell me like where can people find you, chat with you more, and where to find maybe like your coaching services or resources or whatever? Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you today. So thank you for having me on. Yeah, so I run Neurodiverging Coaching, which is Neurodiver with an I-N-G, but it's a gerund because we are actively doing this thinking work. So you can find my website at neurodiverging.com. And that's where there's lots of information on my coaching, if you're interested in that, and also the free low-cost events I've run, like the webinars, the accountability group, the autistic parent peer support group, and other things as they come up, right, as we develop more resources. So that's all on the website. I'm also on social at Neurodiverging. So if you want to find me on Facebook or Instagram, those are my most active platforms, and it's just the same as the website at Neurodiverging. And the Neurodiverging podcast streams, anywhere you get your podcast, just pop in Neurodiverging and it should come up. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on this episode. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful.